Uh, what was very interesting when we showed the orange here, this inch by inch square of map, and we could pick it from anywhere, Sweden, Japan, Australia, um, the big areas of orienteering in the Northeast here, New York State, um, pick a piece of map there. They wouldn't be able to necessarily place it immediately geographically, and we, we weren't charging them with that anyway. We wanted them to talk about, you know, what are the implications for navigation? But man, the detail, the detailed interpretation uh, of that one little square. Uh, talk about an excellent example of how um, an expert has, of course, uh, so the theory goes, this memory structure organized in ways that even one small item in working memory provides immediate access to this wealth of information about even like the history of that landscape and the history of people who've mapped it. They were starting to guess the mapper. I think, oh, this looks like the cartographical scar of people from northern Sweden. And they're just like, oh my God, you know, this guy's 20. How does he know this? All right, welcome to The Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. And we're so excited today to have Associate Professor of Sports Psychology Dr. at Florida State University, Dr. David Eccles. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Eccles. Uh, my pleasure. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Um, so obviously, I'm an academic at Florida State University, go Knowles. And um, my, my key charge by the university, of course, is to do uh, one of my key charges is to do um, um, sort of high quality research, uh, in, in my case, in the area of sports psychology. Um, another key charge is obviously to um, bring students on, bring our graduate students on. We only teach uh, graduate students in the program. Some masters and PhD students who are interested in both being applied sports psychologists, so going out into the real world and, um, for example, um, um, teaching people to use um, um, mental performance strategies to enhance their performance in a range of performance domains from sports to, to music to professional domains uh, and also bring those students on to be researchers as well. Um, many of our students will, will end up working at universities and teaching and researching in, in our area. So that's my, that's my job. My, my routine uh, has, has been um, as career pathways often are when you're approaching 50. Uh, there's some history to it, but um, I uh, started as an uh, undergraduate student in, in uh, what Americans would call kinesiology, um, uh, sports sciences in, in the UK at the time. And so that was sort of broad sports sciences uh, background um, at Bangor University in North Wales. Um, and then uh, I did a PhD after that in sports psychology. I, decided that's the area of the sports sciences that I like. So I stayed on and did a PhD in sports psych. And then after uh, uh, three years there um, doing that, um, I um, was getting papers published and uh, in, in journals uh, as academics do. And, um, you know, I strongly suspected that, that uh, one of my reviewers was, was a, uh, quite a famous psychologist who worked for Florida State University, uh, Anders Ericsson. And, um, you know, I was firmly working in his, his area, which was his focus on expert performance and skill acquisition. And so uh, very practically, uh, I thought, well, he seemed to quite like my work. I'll ask him for a job. And so I, I, I did that and I was keen to travel and see a little bit of the, the world as well. I'd only been in uh, two, living in two countries, technically England and then Wales. And so um, I wrote to him and he was on sabbatical Stanford University at the time, and uh, he said, well, I'm over here, but I've got a chap over here at uh, um, Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, it's called Standalone Research Institute in Pensacola, Florida, and he said, uh, why don't you uh, speak to this guy, Robert Hoffman, who I knew very well from the literature, uh, who did a lot of applied work, particularly for um, NASA and for the US military, um, looking at skill acquisition expertise studies. And so um, I did that and literally with on one of the first planes that flew after 9-11, I flew uh, through Atlanta 
which was a uh, interesting insight at that time to that situation and, and then to Pensacola um, for interview and then joined that institution in what would have been very early 2002. Um, but I kept up this relationship with, with Anders Ericsson and with some other sports psychologists interested in expert performance here at FSU, being only three hours down the road, and came, was invited over by, I think it was uh, Gershon Tenenbaum, Neil Charness, and, um, and Anders Ericsson at the time, and presented in the old psychology building here at FSU, a fantastic uh, nod to 60s architecture um, that was on uh, Copeland. And so presented there and um, kept up that relationship. And then they offered me a position um, to be a tenure track assistant professor doing work on expertise studies. And that's when I joined FSU in 2002. And I never really tended to stay there for a, a, a few years, but um, <clears throat> I never worked as an adult back in my home country uh, uh, in England. And so I came to a point many years later where I thought I would do that. So for a few years, I worked back in uh, England for a university there, uh, a small university in the northeast of the, the country. And um, after uh, six years there, I was made an offer I couldn't refuse to come back to uh, FSU and join uh, some people who are still pretty well known to you, including, of course, Anders Ericsson, but also Bob Eklund and others who study in this area, who have these interesting expertise backgrounds themselves, of course, as many of you know, Bob was an Olympic level uh, wrestler uh, in his past. So uh, the things have stayed the same and I continue to do research in that area and um, work with fantastic students at the university uh, who are a lot of fun. So there you go, not quite a nutshell, but a little bit longer. <laughs> and so did your interest begin because of an interest in sports or how did that start at the very early phases yeah yeah i i um i mean you know <clears throat> in part in part it was uh, an interesting going to university uh and then um the classic you know i should probably go to university um and then but you know what to do and um uh, sports was something that i had a background and interest in i'd always been interested particularly in outdoor sports mm -hmm. uh so things like mountain biking rock climbing uh, hiking, um, kayaking, these sorts of things. And so, um, um, uh, you know, when this, this emerging science uh, called sports science came along, I thought, well, that sounds like the least uninteresting thing I could do. And so, uh, if it was it's a, a way to choose the of, career. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. A path of least resistance, uh, uh, to, to some extent. And the university I was going to, and this is, you know, an important fact, I still say it to our prospective students, it's useful to go somewhere, of course, that you think you might, might like to go to and spend uh, some years at. And so um, Bangor University was in North Wales, and it's right on the coast, and simultaneously uh, just a sort of 20-minute car ride into the mountains from there. And so uh, it, it's a big sort of outdoor playground, really. And, and so instantly, there are a lot of like-minded People going to that same uh, university in the way I can't imagine is untrue for um, uh, the University of, of Boulder, you know, University of Colorado of Boulder. I'm sure is the same, the same way. So that's the kind of university I went to, and uh, uh, and we spent uh, a lot of time, uh, arguably, according to my instructors, in some of the early years of my undergraduate degree, too much time uh, recreating and um, uh, and generally having a good time in the mountains. But of course, you know. Motivation is an important thing, and so um, when I had the option to do a PhD there and stay there, it seemed uh, a good fit in terms of um, uh, lifestyle and interest. Uh, so, yeah. I was going to say, if I remember correctly, some of your beginning research was on mountaineering, right? It was, it was on a, a sport called orienteering, which unless you're in the military in the U.S. or you live in Colorado or in the northeast of the United States, you probably won't be aware of, but it's a navigation-based sport. And um, um, uh, if you pass through West Point, for example, uh, you, you can't get through West Point without learning to orienteer. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, um, but it's a, it's a slightly bigger sport in um, Europe and Australasia than it is in, um, in North America. Um, 
and my one of my two PhD advisors was the sports psychologist to the British Orienteering Squad, the national squads. And the area had its reputation for excellence in mountain sports anyway. It had one of two of the national UK sort of mountaineering training centers of excellence. Um, and it's where they hosted, where they trained for the first successful attempt on Everest. Um, and so it has that historical connection as well. Um, and so my interest in, in you know, the mountaineering side of things fitted when I had this you know, uh, um, PhD advisor whose interest was in this area as well. So I did an undergrad kind of dissertation, final year undergraduate dissertation, uh, looking at some aspects of uh, map memory actually. So mm -hmm. do, do warranties have this memory, better memory, short-term memory for map information, um, um, you know, which is a clear link to that uh, expertise literature. Right. And, um, and then that led me to apply for this uh, PhD program and, uh, and continue work in that area. Uh, which uh, from the get-go really did involve me going and collecting uh, data from that, those national squads at training camps and, and things like that. Uh, and so that was a lot of fun as well, being around, you know, full-time athletes and part-time athletes and, and, and the um, coaches and so on. Yeah. So with some of that initial research that you did, and as you mentioned, that was kind of your first foray, right, into thinking about the, the memory and expertise aspects. What were mm -hmm. some of the things that you learned at that time or the takeaways from that, that early research you did? Um, and I'm testing that, you. Nutshell the learning from my PhD there. I mean, I think that um, I mean, one of the things that struck me in both the reading and then working with the orienteers is is completely in line with uh, you know for example the deliberate practice framework and so that is that if you take somebody who meets that motivation constraint in the theory is motivated and can meet the effort constraint in the theory is motivated and has the resources available, the resource constraint in that same theory, you know, can satisfy those constraints effectively um, in a particular area. And then you give them enough time to engage in daily, you know, focused, uh, goal driven feedback uh, provided a practice. Um, they're going to get really good over time. You know, there's a, um, whether that makes them an expert is, of course, a, a question you're going to ask me later. And, and um, but, um, but spending time with the orienteers, um, you know, that that was very interesting and very clear. And some of them were still quite young, of course, but still have been doing it for a long time. And the requirements of orienteering because you must run and find these controls. Uh, so that the basis is you you're given a map with these novel controls, and you don't know where they are. It's like geocaching in some ways, but you've got to mm -hmm. find the sequence of controls as fast as you can. So these orienteers are top standard. I remember one of them was the European cross-country champion. So these are people that potentially can run sub-five-minute miles uh, in, in, on, on dirt trails um, and um, can find something the size of a shoebox in a forest uh, using a map. You know, so um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, sport, but some of them are young because they need to meet that fitness requirement mm -hmm. um uh, and but some of them are really young it's sort of 20 21 and, and and one of them was was a student from the national squad when i was at bangor and um we did some bits of studies that um we didn't publish we had some small data sets we were playing around with a few things but one of the things i did was take squares from orienteering maps so a map of topography with nothing that a normal human being would recognize in it. There's no cultural artifacts in it, right? It's just a piece of forest in the middle of nowhere. And show like an inch by inch square uh, for five seconds and have the, the orienteer simply charged in um, thinking aloud as they interpret that terrain in terms of the demands of that terrain generally on navigation different types of terrain are easier versus not easy to navigate in right so if you've got something 
there's a great big road sign that says water tower 200 feet that way and you can see the water tower 200 feet that way navigational difficulty is pretty low right there's the sign uh i can see it on my map there it is I, I just, you know no navigational difficulties um but the other end of the scale a classic one for them is uh, a big area of sand dune uh which was relevant of course to the military uh, western military um, in, in particular but a big area of sand dune but what the orienteers loved even better than big areas of sand dune big areas of sand dune is a very hard to navigate area because every sand dune uh, to the to the normal person looks like every other sand dune it's just topographically on a map it's just a little ring contour and then another one and then another one at incident right so but then the orienteers want more difficulty forest has grown on sand dunes so now you can't see anything and pine forest now you can't see anything every pine tree looks exactly like the last one every sand dune look, looks like exactly like the last one and somewhere uh, at you know 1200 meters away is a shoebox you need to find using your map uh, and that's that makes it very difficult that homogeneity in the, in the environment the sameness in the environment makes it very difficult to navigate um, and my original point going all the way back to it was that um, uh, what was very interesting when we showed the orienteer this inch by inch square of map and we could pick it from anywhere sweden japan australia um, the big areas of orienteering in the northeast here new york state um, pick a piece of map there they wouldn't be able to necessarily place it immediately geographically and we, we weren't charging them with that anyway we wanted them to talk about you know what are the implications for navigation but man the detail the detailed interpretation uh, of that one little square. Uh, talk about an excellent example of how um, an expert has, of course, uh, so the theory goes, this memory structure organized in ways that even one small item in working memory provides immediate access to this wealth of information about even like the history of that landscape and the history of people who've mapped it. They were starting to guess the mapper. I think, oh, this looks like the cartographical scar of people from Northern Sweden. And they're just like, oh my God, you know, this guy's 20. How does he know this? But well, he knows this because this is his job, right? Outside of trying to take his classes and go to university, he's on the British squad. He wants to keep his place. This is what he does when he wakes and goes to sleep. And, um, um, to give a, uh, an example that I think I can give a couple of examples to give one that your, your audience might know better. Uh, my students always laugh because uh, I've obviously watched the QB1s in the last couple of years, so I constantly talk about them, but uh, using examples from them. But I think it was Tate Martel um, who, on the face of it, you know, uh, appears, appears a bit of a lad, uh, uh, and yet, uh, there was one anecdote where he was talking about being about nine or something ridiculous and, and having a whole hard copy file folder full of different types of play. And when he used to go to bed at night, he used to read them. And then all of a sudden I had, you know, a little bit more respect for him than, than the necessarily confident exterior that he, he sometimes present, presented uh, because I could see that student of the game um, uh, uh, coming out there. Um, and so, you know, that was one of the things I, I think I learned there. And then by being at university generally and doing my PhD, um, I saw there were quite a lot of like-minded people, particularly, of course, amongst the sports psychologists who were all about this idea of the potential for growth mm -hmm. through uh, choices about activities that you engage in within those constraints, of course, not everyone has the opportunities that everybody else has to undertake these things, right? But within those constraints, that if you spend your time doing those types of things, um, probably sooner or later, you are going to benefit from them in ways that take you from a, your current level of performance to a new one. And, and you know, I, I, could, I could see that in those orienteers, I was reading about that in the literature 
and I was in a sort of culture of that anyway, being in you know quite a internationally renowned sports like um, environment that the head of the department at that time was the first non-US winner of the Coleman Griffith Award, for example, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology's uh, top uh, sports psychology award. Um, so that's that's what I learned, and 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 that made a big impression on me. Um, um, for the rest of my life, that university experience, uh, because of those things and because of what I was studying, I think left me with with a sense that um, within those constraints, uh, it, it was possible to seek out ways to uh, reach goals through identifying carefully the kinds of activities that would elevate your current level of capability, um, which, you know, uh, is often referred to, of course, as, as uh, in the practice framework, at least as, as deliberate practice. At the risk of derailing the entire conversation, um, mm. <laughs> that would, you said something earlier that made me think of the, where when you're orienteering and you're running towards the target, you're, you said sub five minute mile, um, these people are running really fast, but it almost seems like you could very easily make a mistake and hurt yourself really uh, badly as far as navigating where you need to go. So if I miss a mark, I've gone really quickly the other direction uh, that I need, other than what I need to go. Do you think that this is uh, analogous to uh, life in general and did they work <laughs> on that particular skill? Uh, well, two, two points, I'm gonna do a classic academic thing there. I identified two points. The first one, you are right. Um, so when they when they feel they navigationally, uh, it's safe to open out their capability to run at those top speeds, you know, um, uh, and when they feel it's safe underfoot, they will do, and they'll give particular examples of that, and they'll show you them on their head-mounted video camera. Um, we were fortunate enough in some later studies to work with some French folks from INSEP, which is like the top. French sports science uh, uh, place. Um, uh, in my lifetime, there's been an emergence of a sort of Tiger Woods character, as Tiger Woods for golf, kind of reset the thing. In, in orienteering, uh, brilliant French name. You never get a name as cool as this in, in Anglo-Saxon uh, name, but uh, Thierry Georgiou. Um, Terry George in English, right? Terry George. In French, Thierry Georgiou. Uh, anyway, uh, he, um, uh, he, was the, he, he was, and to some extent, I'd have to check actually still is, you know, a real leader in the area and fantastic uh, athlete. Um, but we managed to convince him to stick a head mounted video camera on, you, you know, when you've got a confident athlete because he's, he's prepared to do that and run in his national level events <laughs> and, uh, and still beat the opposition. The only thing that made me want to take that a level up is to mic him up and make him talk aloud throughout that That's whole right. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would have been the next level of confidence. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. I can do anything. Um, but um, um, but but they they will so they give you examples of doing that or you may be able to see them and that's the classic almost the navigation easy scenario I've suggested. So if you come around the corner and looking for a water tower and you see it, so there's no navigational requirement, and between you and the water tower is a nice flat, non-bumpy, firm trail, then Here's an opportunity to outrun your colleagues to get to that next navigational point, right? However, when the navigation gets very difficult, uh, almost part of what makes orienteering an interesting sport is doing exactly what you're suggesting. It's, it's learning to gauge how fast am I prepared to go before I trade off those navigational mistakes. And and you can see, can't you? I mean, anyone who knows anything about sports will like that inherent strategic component of the sport. It'll make it attractive um, because um, that's exactly what they do. And, and there are some famous anecdotes in, in some of our interview studies with the orienteers where uh, they had some video of one of the top orienteers at the time who ran into a control. So that's the point where there's actually a little punch these days, it's electronic to register you've been there in the middle of 
you know, the forest somewhere or the canyons, whatever they are, register he'd been there and ran out of them. And then he suddenly stopped. And he stopped for about something ridiculous amount of time, like, I don't know, 37 seconds. He was just completely stationary, looking at the map, working out some latent navigational problem now so that he could optimize the rest of the race. And so in his head, he was obviously highly experienced. He's obviously seen something that made him think, I'm prepared to trade off being stationary in the moment to solve that navigational problem ahead before I go there. It's the equivalent of uh, less of a problem these days with sat-nav, although certainly not um, solved, but it's the equivalent of driving through a city or an area, part of town you don't know. And as you get sort of near the area where you've now got to find, you know the general area, so you can just head there and you can see the sign of the interstate, but as you get near the office block you're looking for, for example, or the specific address, you pull over into that off the side of the road and quickly check the address on your phone or look at a map or whatever to get it right before you get there so that they are aware that if they miss that, they miss that feature and go beyond it, the recovery navigationally beyond the feature is much harder than getting it right in advance. So that answers, that's about issue one. You are right that they will do that and they do that all the time. They gauge how fast or slow. Whether that's a metaphor for life, you might have to leave me a, a couple of days and some, and some time at 3 a.m. in the morning, sitting in bed, uh, thinking about that. There's, there's probably some, some uh, sage wisdom in there somewhere, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure. It reminds me of one of the things I found most fascinating of the research that we did in the lab at FSU, which was really looking at the anticipation piece, right? Yeah. And, when and how they did that and what impact that had. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about orienteering compared to a lot of the traditional anticipation work that I try and argue strongly in, in my papers to create some novelty uh, uh, <laughs> uh, is that the course of orienteering, anticipation's traditionally been thought of in relation to sports where something is externally paced. So the environment changes whether you like it or not. You know, if you play football and you stop moving, the world doesn't stop moving and if you're holding the football you'll know that abruptly because some <laughs> people you know rub your face in the dirt but in orienteering you stop moving nothing moves and so well you know at a first glance people say well how is anticipation important it's important because there's a time element right. you're trying to go as fast as you can through the environment so if on route through the environment you're able to solve those problems while you're getting there just like navigating in, in your car you're able to solve them before you get there, while you're getting there, so you don't have to stop and discreetly solve the problem at that point, uh, then you're going to be much faster through, through the terrain. It's the equivalent of recognizing ahead of your car journey that it's going to be tricky. Uh, in, my, in my head, I went to a conference in downtown Denver, and uh, in true conference style, when I arrived, I um, decided to, I needed some rest and recovery. And so I left Denver, drove up into the mountains <laughs> for a day or so, and then drove back to the to the conference. You were just preparing yourself to be engaged in the conference. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. <laughs> I needed to clear my mind according to my Eccles Casimir 2019 risks. So I drove back in, and so I'm coming down whatever the interstate is that goes east-west through the mountains. There. I can't even remember which one it is now. And I'm driving down that interstate, down that massive hill back into Denver that goes on and on. But I'm already thinking, hmm, this is easy. It's not going to be easy when I get to central Denver. And so already thinking at that point, well, when I stop next, you know, for a break, I'm going to try and do all that work now um, to minimize the work I need to do at that point. So I can just go straight in there. So I'm not, I don't have, you know, Billy behind me honking his horn because yeah. I'm not moving at some optimal speed through the, uh, the downtown traffic. So it's that. It's that kind of, um, uh, uh, I think, aspect of anticipation that's important. The more you can do yeah. those jobs ahead of time. Uh, you were once uh, students, and you now teach students, or at least, you know, uh, uh, Kev does, and um, it's trying to persuade your students that looking ahead to, ahead of the deadlines and solving some of those problems with time on your side is uh is generally nicer than um 
experiencing a sudden shock because something's right in your face and then having to react to it. Uh, I think it's both cognitively easier to problem solve, but it's certainly emotionally easier as well, right? So, <laughs> so you've also been, uh, Lauren, did you have a question? I was just curious to take us back a little bit and similar thought for you, Kevin, of, to potentially maybe derail us or take us in a different direction. You mentioned that idea of mental models, right? You didn't call it that at the time, but that's what you were talking about of, you know, that ex through the building of expertise, that's what you're doing. You're building up these networks of, of information and connections in the mind, right? I'm curious though, if that research that you did back then or any, research that you've done throughout your career on this has looked at it this more than in just a cognitive sense. Um, the reason I ask that is because several years ago when I used to teach an undergrad class on the psychology of injury, one of the videos I used to show the students was about um, a, a researcher out of, I think he was from Australia, that studies chronic pain and he mm -hmm. was showing basically the the very intricate and well-networked thing that pain is in the brain, right? It connects to not just actually the pain centers of the body, but it connects to memories and beliefs and our perceptions about things. And so I'm curious if um, the, the study of mental models has gone outside of just the realms of cognitive expertise. Um, I mean, I think that um, one way to, to, to one way to consider and interpret and consider your, your question there is to think about um, the, the product, it's argued, the product of being in high quality instructional and practice environments is the acquisition of mental representations or mental models, um, knowledge structures is the more accessible term, knowledge uh, that's, that's accessible and connected in, in the brain over time. Um, and so whilst those are cognitive things, cognitive entities, um, constructs, um, of course, um, it doesn't mean that they don't, and then the, the, the theory is of course that those mental representations then mediate or sort of control future behaviors. Your skilled behavior is, a, is you're only able to, to do, have skilled behaviors as an athlete or another performer because you've acquired these mental representations over time through you know, good instruction and practice. Um, so although those, those are cognitive things, it doesn't mean that they don't control um, regulatory processes that are emotional and motivational and so on. And so um, if, if a performer over time feels they've learned something through, you know, let's take a classic academic task or classic member of public task, uh, public speaking, some kind of uh, speaking uh, event. Um, and Kev, I know, you know, in stand-up comedy, for example, um, sort of stage work, any kind of stage work, um, if over time you acquire any skills, you feel you've acquired any skills at doing that kind of work, standing in front of people and speaking to them, um, um, those mental representations um, may help you with cognitive things like planning what you're going to say, remembering what you're going to say, um, and so on. But they surely, one part of that skill acquisition process is to acquire mental representations that allow you to better regulate and interpret things related to emotion and, and confidence and um, emotional control. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I I don't know if I have acquired any skills in public speaking over time, but you know, one of the things I have learned, I think, to try to remember at the very last moment in the at that very last moment before you speak is to try and have some fun. Because I think before that you do all the cognitive work, right? I must remember to do this. Uh, these are this set of slides. Uh, the audience is this, and 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 um, these are the key points I want to get across. I mean, I'm, I'm here to get these points across. Must make sure. You know, cognitive work, lining it all up, getting ready. But then, of course, uh, the room fills with all of these people, or it used to before uh, uh, we <laughs> did everything remotely, right? Uh, and um, and all of a sudden, you know, there's, we know that there's suddenly there's oh, hang on a minute, there's some emotional demands here as well. But but you know, if I've learned that, then 
then that's a mental representation I presumably now have that I acquired over time, which is last thing you do, try and remember to have a, uh, this, this could be fun to try and have some fun, you know, with it a little bit. And, and it doesn't matter if some bits, some of the wheels fall off as you go along. Uh, particularly, of course, if the audience laughs occasionally, they still think you're, you're pretty good. It's, an, it's not a bad strategy, is it? So, uh, so try and have a little bit of fun with it. Um, so presumably, if that's my job, that's only a very small fraction of, of, of my, my job. Um, but if that's your, your day job, uh, um, I'm guessing that you acquire all kinds of refined mental representations that help mediate all kinds of aspects of your performance that include those emotional and motivational aspects uh, of what you do. Um, I don't think there's any question there. If we learn anything about how, you know, one of the classic paradigms, as you know, in sports psychology research is, uh, in fact, kicked off arguably by Coleman Griffith, or at least he recognized that this would be a useful paradigm way back in the 1920s, is that let's try and look at what people who are consistently successful in what they do and try and tease out, you know, psychological strategies that they're using or attributes or skills that separate them from those who, who aren't successful. And in, in sports psychology, where we've done that, um, and we see these sorts of skills, mental skills that are required uh, and reported by high level athletes. Um, there's, no, there's no question there when we look at those that some of the functions of those mental representations that they've acquired, that they verbalize in interviews about things like you know, effective goal setting or use of imagery or arousal regulation strategies or use of relaxation strategies and so on, um, there's no question that those mental representations are brought to bear, you know, during their performance that helped them um, be emotionally more successful during during those performances. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I was asking. You know, from my kind of performance coach, mm -hmm. you know, perspective, it, it piqued my interest. You know, because I think developing the skill set and basically having it within you is one thing, but being able to execute it and execute it when it matters most and execute it consistently is a whole nother thing that requires what you're talking about, which is, you know, consideration of the motivational things at work and also the emotional, right? Like if it's a pressure situation, like you're saying, what's my lens on that? And what is the emotion? And emotion has such a strong tie to memory. Fair to say it probably has a strong tie in then to mental representations. Um, and that's an important piece of this, you know, to, to think about in terms of actually executing one's expertise. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, I've got a student now who's interested in, in virtual reality, but imagine if we could take that, you're probably familiar with this idea of peplep imagery, but mm -hmm. where we begin to try and recreate the performance scenario or situational demands of, with the greatest fidelity we can when we're using imagery. Well, imagine you can take that a step further. You know, you've never played in the um, Gillette Stadium, for example, and um, you're going to um, well, imagine if we can completely recreate that stadium in a practice scenario, even if you're, you know, two time zones away for another team. And uh, so we can get the maximum practice effect, feel the demands of the crowd, you know, all those sorts of things and, and, and build those mental representations that allow us to have that kind of adaptation or habituation effect to that, to that new stadium. Um, in one of the, the studies with the orienteers um, that we did, um, that I always thought this is another example of, to answer Kev's earlier question about, you know, things I learned in the, the PhD there before they would go to a world championship. So when I was interviewing them for a study, they were gonna go to Japan for world championships and they have a limited budget. So they're not an NFL team. They can't all get on a plane and fly over there and train in Japan and besides the the course they orienteer on has to be set up to be completely novel and then embargoed. They're not allowed to practice on that specific course to maintain that novelty element, mm -hmm. much like kayak canoes on the river, actually. They can paddle the river beforehand, but then all the gates will be moved to recreate another uh, competition. The, these days, most of the Olympic competitions are on artificial rivers. They'll move a rock here so the flow of the river changes, so it's a novel course to keep that aspect 
and reduce home advantage as well. Um, uh, to my knowledge of kayak canoeing, I maybe <laughs> in my bed movie, incorrect interpretation, certainly true for orienteering. Well, the lengths they went to, the British orienteering squad at the time, to find out what those demands were going to be in Japan, they could send some people there. So they sent people there, with, you know, video cameras, they video all the terrain, they get a sense of the humidity, they try and work out, you know, uh, the exact kind of likely terrain they're going to be on for physiological demands. They, there's bamboo, you know, bam, there's no bamboo in Britain, right? So, so how are we going to cope navigating through bamboo? Uh, it's a mm. different thing. Um, but, but the lengths they went to to try to, first of all, understand those unique constraints that they were going to be operating in and then recreate them in a practice scenarios to maximally adapt to that competition specific set of scenarios um, was, was very interesting to me. And they would be trying to obtain aerial images of sample terrain and studying aerial images, getting old maps, trying to find out who's going to map the thing. Because car cartographers, if you're this good at orienteering, you understand that each cartographer has a slightly different interpretation style, like a code. And so they want to understand and learn that particular code. And, and so, you know, I think that's another example there of the, 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 that sort of thing that certainly constitute deliberate practice, very high specific, specific targeted exercises. Um, yeah, very, it was very interesting to, to see that go on. And some of your earliest work that you're well known for is your work on a group of experts or teams of experts. Uh, tell us a little <clears throat> bit about that research. <clears throat> sure. So um, that's, a, um, that's a, an interesting one. I, I um, in my postdoc, um, which was at this Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, uh, the, the institute funded largely by uh, uh, military, US military funders and, and NASA. Um, there, uh, my, my mentor at the time, uh, Robert Hoffman, was um, uh, putting together some, some work for a book and asked me to read some latest work and interpret it and, and, and write a you know, some synopses of these, this literature. And I was an extremely fortunate um, um, position of, um, <laughs> I'm going to definitely give away my academic credentials now. I was an extremely fortunate position of spending months sitting on my own in a room reading. Uh, so, um, so one of the books I read, uh, which I thought was excellent um, and influenced a fair chunk of subsequent work actually was a Cognition in the Wild by Edwin Hutchins, who you might know is the um, MacArthur, is it MacArthur Award winner, you know, the Genius Grant Award winner. Uh, um, but, um, 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 but, but some of his work there, where he was trying to look at how skilled performance happened in the real world, was looking at skilled performance in um, maritime navigation uh, in the days when um, they still charted the ship's position on physical maps and a team did it. There's a navigation team that continually charted the ship's position, but it required others. Uh, the, and I'm going to show my lack of maritime knowledge now, but the, the captain guy, somebody else who was a spotter who did other measurements with light thingies, who then got on the radio and said, you know, this is the measurement here. This is what I see here. And all this information is taken into the navigation room and then they chart the ship's position. And this, as you imagine in, the, in, in maritime navigation, particularly in the military, um, there's a whole discipline associated with getting that exactly right. And a whole sort of um, respect uh, predicated on you know, a ship's team being able to know exactly where they are at all times. And so he was very interested in how all those people in different parts of the ship coordinated to make this happen. And so I read this and um, about the same time as my, my uh, I think it was, um, it was certainly early days, uh, 2003, uh, I, I followed the England rugby team and they went to the World Cup final uh, in Australia 
and um, made it all the way to the, the final of the, uh, the World Cup um, and, and played Australia in the final in Australia. And it went to overtime and um, England won it with seven seconds remaining with a, uh, a field goal. And uh, which in, in, in rugby is, is, I think it's, it's a drop kick. It's, it's long enough now since I've watched the game to, to know actually. But yeah, it was a drop kick, a sort of equivalent of a field goal in, in American football. And so, um, <clears throat> uh, so I was reading, you know, the, the press afterwards and Johnny Wilkinson, who made that uh, drop goal and um, um, won the World Cup for England, uh, said, um, you know, we rehearsed this in training. It went absolutely like clockwork. And so I thought that was interesting. Um, and then I read a bit about, you know, some of the discussions about um, creativity and how things weren't planned, you know, particularly in soccer. Soccer is seen as the classic thing where it's impossible to have plans, which I think is, is complete uh, nonsense. And I try to outline that in, in some theories. You can plan at a certain level of abstraction. Um, but, um, but then there was this tension between this sort of, planning of coordination versus this creativity of coordination. And that's exactly represented It's exactly the same problem in cognitive science between plans and, um, and, and uh, cognitive constructs uh, like mental models that apparently structure plans and then versus, is often seen as versus, uh, the environment mm -hmm. and whether it's possible to take a plan and have that be brought to bear on the environment or whether that makes cognitively this, this plan too, too brittle. So you might know Suchman's work uh, uh, on situated cognition uh, as a counterpoint to this idea of planning. Anyway, so I was aware of that cognitive work and that's some of the work that H Hutchins was trying to do, saying I think these, these constructs from lab-based cognition have a tough time if that's our sole explanatory device when we look at real-world cognition. It's, it's, there are some more things we need to know, you know, uh, about, about how it happens. So I was doing all this reading, I was watching this rugby and Wilkinson said this all happens like clockwork. And I was thinking, well, when I look at the group dynamics literature in sport, um, uh, cohesion is the go-to construct at the time, right? So everyone's interested in team building and cohesion. In fact, you know, uh, when you mention teams, they still are actually, it's the go-to sort of uh, uh, team building. And when I say, what does team building mean? Are you trying to get the team to coordinate better? Um, and often it's, well, I, we're just trying to get them to get along better, actually. So, you know, usually the, the interest is first and foremost still in cohesion. So I looked at, say, you know, how do we explain theoretically um, how person A knows what to do if person B does this? You know, how, how does that coordination happen? Um, um, both, both when person B is your opponent, when your opponent does X, what do you do? But also your own team. So when your team member moves into space there, um, how do you know what to do to be able to coordinate with that member effectively? And of course, you know, I think American football is a great example to see so much of that coordination trying to happen. That's, that's what they try and do all the time, right? The other team tries to disrupt it, but the team executing, uh, particularly on offense, is trying to achieve that, that coordination. Well, we didn't have any, as sports psychologists, any explanatory mechanisms for that. Well, reading in industrial and organizational psychology, they did. So a very cynical interpretation of my own work is that I simply imported those constructs from industrial and organizational psychology into sports psychology. No, but you know, I would say don't think that's cynical because I don't think I've ever told you this, but that was like looking at the work that you were doing and, and you did some of this with, with Gershon Tenenbaum Bryant and Katie mm -hmm. Tran, it was game changing for me in terms of how I was approaching the work that I was doing with teams. Cause it, uh -huh. it was like what you said, it never made sense to me. Like, even getting in there working with teams and, and from our sports psych literature at the time, it was very focused on this idea of cohesion, which was like basically try to help them get along better or something, but there was no really relationship to performance in my mind, right? Like right. what does exactly. that have to do with performance? So right. When I started reading about your team coordination stuff, it truly was. That's when I started focusing on team culture, and it seemed like it really prompted a shift in in the sports psych community as well to focus less. I will say less, but I don't necessarily mean it that way. But less on co on cohesion and team yeah. building, and more on this idea of 
we certainly have to help people build relationships, quality relationships, but that that's in service of helping them perform better together, which really gets at the coordination piece. Yeah, and I was very pleased to see, in fact, you flagged it to me that Colleen Hacker, of course, who'd worked with the United States women's soccer team, had, had used that work in her own work. So, uh, no, I was being self-deprecating. It, it happens very rarely, uh, <laughs> but I thought I'd flag that moment. Um, no, I mean, the, the point is, yeah, we, we just, you know, there's a whole bunch of potential concepts here and concepts then from communication. I mean, all the way through to these things that at very first glance, you're like, how's that connected? And then you think about it for the next moment, you're like, it's absolutely connected about, for example, how jazz bands achieve coordination. And I know you've been interviewing musicians. So, and we would find similar patterns of the things they felt they had to know and do and hear to be able to coordinate their teamwork. And, and so, you know, I try to pull that all into uh, a vaguely coherent framework and, and Gershon help in that regard. And um, that, that remains my, my most cited work. And Gershon's right when he says that I haven't pursued empirical studies in that area vigorously. Uh, um, uh, and that, that's in part because um, there are only so many hours in the day and, and um, in part because there are other pieces of research that I do. But I still actually have in, in mind, even though others have done it now, I still have in, have in mind a sort of, and Katie Tran is one of those who did do it, for that kind of long-term um, cognitive ethnographic type of study where we go and see a team and, and see what is it? Because it's a constant question, of course, asked by uh, the press that everyone wants to know, how do you take, particularly American football, uh, what is the roster limit? I always ask my students this. They always tell me and then I always forget. 90-something? What is the roster limit on an NFL team? It's pretty high. <laughs> it's 90-something, isn't it? So 90 people and, and create, well, more than one team, effectively, uh, who's able to do these things, and, and a whole range of them, and at a great depth. You know, when we've interviewed the NFL player, I transitioned some years ago from college to NFL, and they would say, you know, one of the things I found difficult was this was my playbook of college, and this is my playbook now. Of course, it's all on iPads these days, but, you know, and uh, uh, it's, it's a miracle. And of course, you know, it's part of that lovely mystery that that's why we like team sports, right? Because how do they, how do these great coaches uh, achieve that? Uh, who's the coach that looks like you, Kev? Um, for the um, Kansas City Chiefs, right? Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So great coaches like you uh, who are able to, uh, Get people to coordinate well you know i think that's 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 andy reed andy reed that I, is yeah i blanked yeah. on his name because i immediately was thinking brad pitt but that's, <laughs> that joke is going to come up every other episode well it's interesting though you know now working in business a lot i work with some startups that are quite small and then i work with with some clients and leaders of global companies right uh -huh. and it's so interesting to me that the challenges are the same, right? Whether you've got five people on a team or 200,000 in a company spread around the globe yep. and all these micro teams, yep. you're still dealing with the same challenges of coordinating human dynamic and performance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, uh, you know, well-recognized concept in, in that literature of the coordination overhead. So you, you get more labor, you know, and you can distribute your labor so you can use specialisms in different areas, exactly what happens on a football team. Right? Uh, and you can get more labor in the corporate world, but you've got to coordinate that labor. Otherwise, you may as well not employ people. And that's the greatest cost of any company is, of course, employing people. And so you've got to know, any small business person knows the huge risk to take on somebody else because, you know, you've, you've, you've got to be on the same page as, as our everyday language that we use to describe the concept of you know sharedness of mental construct we've, we've got to try and share this mental model that we have now in some way this knowledge we've got of how we're going to go about the task we've, we've got to achieve some sharedness between us to, to be able to make that that happen yeah and similar to what we were talking about with motivation and emotion, we've got to share those things as well, right? Like the, the mindset pieces of it too. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Um, you know, I've worked for uh, two, uh, not, not 
including my, my postdoc, I worked for two institutions that it seems to me had very different approaches to motivation. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I certainly know which I preferred, um, <laughs> which is why I work back at FSU. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so I have a question going back to that transition from kind of your postdoc to becoming a worldly or world recognized researcher. Um, was there ever a point that you made a conscious decision? Were you setting goals that you want to produce either this quality or this amount, or did it just kind of, did you just kind of end up into that kind of position? Uh, well, in terms of sort of publications and things, you mean? Yes, because you've obviously made a splash um, in the, the field, and I've always been curious when academics are either that well-known or that productive, whether it's something they just did because they, if it just happened as a secondary component of it, or if it was something that they were actually setting goals along the way. Well, of course, you know, you, you, uh, um, you know, as a tenure track professor, um, um, you can't help but hear all the daily, <laughs> daily tropes of productivity uh, that are uh, uh, banded about, you know, and propagated. So you, you, you're, you're always in that, that mindset um, that um, you've, you've got to produce a certain amount of publications. And, you know, you, you know, it's not just about numbers, of course, they, they've got to be things that when you send out to full professors working at other research category one universities, when they write their letters back, they're going to say, yeah, you know, David or Samantha, whoever it is, is not only productive, but um, this looks like research category one, you know, university research. It's, um, it's of high quality and, and has impact and changes the way we think is probably the ultimate bar changes the way we think about something or contributes to our understanding in some significant way. So you always got your, your mind on that. So of course you are paper chasing to some extent so you can pay the mortgage. Um, but, but when you can, I mean, all the self-determination theorists would like this. Um, but that's, that's, a, that's a tough way to survive motivationally. And so my image uh, is of Bangor University Library. And I was thinking, academia is an interesting thing because you've got to be able to stand up in front of a large group of people at a conference and for a little while there be yeah be extroverted um but you've also got to have another dimension to your, your personality which is i think part of the reason i like academia uh, where it's quite useful sometimes to be entirely introverted and, and and really like the going into a library when nobody else is there and finding an article that interests you uh and nobody else that's the very important, at least for me, um, uh, that nobody else is telling you you should be interested in. I think that's very important. It's, for me, it's got to really tick that very end box on the extrinsic, intrinsic uh, continuum, that you're intrinsically interested in reading, that even if you now stop your job and go and work in a different job, um, uh, serving drinks in a hotel bar or something, that you're still going to read when you get home at night because you're interested in how teams get stuff done. Uh, and so, um, um, so it had to be still about some of those elements. And with tenure, of course, um, comes a little bit more flexibility there that you, you can pursue uh, with a little less regard for one worrying about the you know, meeting targets, uh, things you're interested in. And so, uh, in addition to that library, that's the library for my undergraduate and my, my, my graduate university in Bangor in North Wales, that's the, that's the oldest part of one of the oldest libraries that looks the most like um, the Harry Potter kind of scene there. Um, um, uh, but I can tell you, you know, for example, the recent work on rest that I've been working on, that uh, when I was um, at, at Durham University in the, the UK, uh, Durham spelt like the Durham in North Carolina. Um, when I was there, about 25 minutes away was a, uh, an enormous uh, shopping mall, like the Mall of America. This just uh, huge, uh, quite famous uh, shopping mall called the Metro Center. And uh, on a Wednesday, um, typically there were very few uh, uh, commitments. Um, um, they, there were sometimes some 
some endless, incredibly boring uh, administrative meetings. But but the intrinsic motivated part was that um, uh, I get in the car and 25 minutes later I'd be at the metro centre. And at the weekend it was chaos, of course, because everybody would descend on the metro centre and it's just chaos. But on a Wednesday at like 2 p.m. Um, I could go there and they had a, a equivalent of a Barnes and Noble at uh, Waterstones, and I could go in there and they had soft chairs, even better, and just <laughs> read stuff I was interested in in these soft chairs. And um, and so I spent uh, a few months going there on a Wednesday and uh, not looking at email and uh, annoying everybody trying to get things from me and, and just reading uh, those those papers. And then, you know, I'd get up and walk around the mall for a bit. Uh, I couldn't do it forever. And then I'd transition to a coffee shop that overlooked the, like second floor or something of the, 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 the center and read some more. And then I would go to a Marks and Spencer's department store and buy a pastry and then come back and have another coffee and a pastry and read some more. And just stuff I was interested in reading it didn't involve anybody else. Um, I had a plan to write some papers in relation to it. When they were going to get done, I wasn't sure. Um, but it was about this concept of rest that I felt, much like the coordination stuff, there was just this obvious gap in the literature uh, and yet appeared in every theory of skill acquisition and, and physical training, in fact, as well. We go to the periodization of bumper and people like that. There's this big rest thing. And, and um, outside of physical considerations, there were no sort of mental considerations of what that meant and might entail and what athletes' reports of it were. And so I'd search for that stuff. And that was part of the interest, of course, of what accounts can I get of athletes describing what they do when they're not training? Because the questions are always about what they're doing when they're training and when they're speaking to their coach and when they're in the gym and when they're on the field. But what are they doing when they're not doing that? And how might that affect, and it should do according to these theories, how might it affect their skill acquisition. Um, and so uh, it's that intrinsic interest there that um, would please the self-determination theorists because of course it's that purely whimsical interest in something that piques your interest that you want to unpick. At the same time, you've got to have an idea that it's going to contribute somewhere to the literature. You've got to have your eye on that contribution. I suppose that's part of the interest, isn't it? Is that, hey, I could I could contribute this. You know, no one's thought of this. I suppose that is part of the fun. It's a, I'm a child, really. Uh, you know, it's that, that sort of surprise element. Surprise! Look what I did. Uh, and so, um, uh, and so it is. But, but I think that that fun component is still part of that intrinsic component, uh, because so much of the rest of the the job can be, you know. You got to do X, you got to do Y, and it just doesn't look like fun, you know. So uh, you've got to be sustained on that intrinsic component. So that's 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 one of the the reasons I've I've produced those pieces. Yes, it is part of my job, but I'm intrinsically interested in doing it. And so I found that I found that out a bit in my PhD, uh, and, and I can still remember a point where I sat in wasn't quite that library. It was a just outside that library at Bangor, I sat reading something and thought, hey, if this is going to be my job, that's all right. Uh, and, and so that, that's, that is where I'm lucky. You know, if I, my, my former colleague, Nicole Gabana, does the gratitude interventions, I'm certainly grateful uh, of, of that. I've been very fortunate in that, in that regard. So you're hitting at the motivational piece, but it also reminds me of what I told you when we unfortunately heard of Anders passing. The, uh -huh. the memory that stood out to me was of the ping pong table that he bought us for the research lab. Because yeah, yeah. I think that's a side of the deliberate practice theory that no one really talks about, about the attention management, right? The energy management. Um, so interested to hear about the, the current work you're doing on the kind of rest recovery piece and the, the deliberate practice piece. Yeah, I mean, this, this is uh, the origins of this are an interest in professionally. Again, uh, Kev, back to your point about, you know, producing papers and being tenure track and feeling under that pressure to produce. And, and uh, you know, the culture, the language, the narratives, so sociologists would like this, uh, 
the narratives used uh, in society to uh, discuss rest as a firm second to work, right? Mm -hmm. It is a virtue in our society to be seen to be working hard. In fact, it, it, you know, almost to a fault, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. It can be useless, in fact, arguably, I would argue, it can be useless, but as long as you're working hard, you must be okay, you know? And, um, and then when you look at the literature, as I have been doing and, and trying to understand, you know, Erickson's original 1993 paper, but, but lots of other pieces besides, lots of other literature besides, um, that's not what the theories said, and that's not what much of the evidence supporting them said. Um, you know, if we go to the what we know about exercise physiology, there's got to be a rest phase after a training phase for that super compensation to occur, right? I was going to say periodization. They've always really had that in mind. Mm -hmm. Right. And so to start with is that. And then in the theory of deliberate practice, which has been a big influence on the work I've done, I think very few papers, I don't cite that, that paper, <laughs> along with thousands of others, clearly. Um, um, you're right. It's, it's in there, isn't it? Tune into part two of our conversation with Dr. David Eccles, in which he talks about his research on the importance of rest for high performers. The Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all rights reserved. <laughs>